Welcome to Millennials Are Killing Capitalism. This is Jay. For this episode, I'm joined by Haridar of The Resistance Report, which is a podcast that was launched after October 7th by a Palestinian news organization known as Al Palestinia Media Network, or AFMN. In this discussion, we talked to Haidar about AFMN, their approach, their media work, including the Resistance Report, and their efforts to uplift analyses of Palestinians from Palestine to those in the diaspora. We talk a little bit about their analysis of the Resistance's position and of the unfolding genocidal depravity of the Zionist occupation in Palestine. We talk about the suppression of AFMN as an outlet which has attempted to set up offices and develop correspondence in Gaza. We also get into a little bit of a discussion of episode four of theirs, which is entitled Alaraj's Echo, Guiding Modern Resistance, which highlights the life and contributions of Basil Alaraj to the Palestinian resistance. We encourage folks to check out their work for yourselves, and if you like what they're doing, to support their work. We will include links to listen and support them in the show notes. And of course, if you want to support our work, we have a study group that starts next week. We'll come together at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday nights to discuss the counterinsurgency field manual. If you become a patron of the show for as little as a dollar a month, you can join us for that study group or just contribute and make this show possible along with the work on our YouTube channel at patreon.com slash millennials are killing capitalism. Now, here is our interview with Haidar of The Resistance Report. All right, so today we're going to talk with uh, one of the creators, El Falestinia. I know I butchered that, but he's going to correct me in a second. It's a relatively new outlet that has, I think, really begun producing material primarily after October 7th, so after the beginning of Al-Aqsa flood. And, you know, I it's it's an outlet that I go to. They provide, you know, good, you know, short summaries and analysis of events in Palestine and contextualizing and informing people about the Palestinian resistance, sharing some history, some important figures. So could you start just by saying a little bit about AFMN what your project aims to do and the necessity of launching something like this when you did. Uh, yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me here today. Al-Falastinia, uh, which means the Palestinian, basically. Uh, we came about in, I would say, October of 2022. But we've we faced some issues that I think we'll talk about it later, but we have started a new program right around October 7th or right following it, which was a program that was in the, in the works called the resistance report, which is specifically reacting to the need to provide in-depth analysis that can bring people up to speed, but also give people the, you know, linguistic, analytical, intellectual tools to understand Palestinian resistance and uh, the project of the resistance report is we want this program to be also to react to both contemporary issues relating to Palestinian resistance, but also to look back uh, as you notice, like with the ambassador to the Outers podcast. So 
the reason the project came about was it's a reaction to the very well-known suppression of Palestinian rhetoric, Palestinian narrative, Palestinian voices on social media platforms, which seems to be the, where most people look for getting their information. Also, this feeling that there is not a global platform for Palestinians that centers the Palestinian perspective in the English language, which is what many people speak. I mean, if you, there's plenty of outlets in the Arabic language. Right. So AFM is specifically an internationalist. We have an internationalist aim in using the English language because of its prevalence globally. There's a few goals. You know, the goal of delivering a high-level political awareness. AFMN came about with the goal of showing Palestinians to each other everywhere. So a kind of connecting thread to us in the global diaspora. Uh, we have many projects that we want to work on. Right now, the resistance report, because we're limited capacity, the resistance report is what we're hoping to be kind of like our pilot, like what we grow out of. That's great. So just following along that point, you know, in the first episode of the resistance report, you all offer some introductions of like who you are and kind of where you're situated. And as you just mentioned, you know, it seems like at least those that introduced themselves in that episode are located in various places of the diaspora, as you kind of referenced. And so I'm curious if that plays a role at all in the type of analysis or perspective you want to bring. I guess to pose it differently, you know, how do you think about your audience in terms of what you want to create? And I think, you know, this connects obviously to sort of what you said too about there's a lot that's available within Arabic, but then for folks who don't speak Arabic, and this is something I've talked a little bit about with Abdul Jawad Omar too, you know, because a lot of his writing historically had been in Arabic and he made a, a pivot, you know, recently to do more in English. Yeah. So anyways, just say a little bit about that in terms of you all and your audience and the role within the diaspora and yeah. Absolutely. So whenever we first started, we were attempting to do programming. We were actually, we had individuals in, in Europe who were working on Anchor and Gaza individuals in South America. But, you know, when we started up, we were relying on the capacity of organizers and, you know, there's so much to do. So it really the core group right now are individuals in the diaspora, you know, and, and this informs our experience. We all have uh, various connections and degrees of separation physically from the homeland. I would say that what we bring is an understanding of the gap or like the difference between the baseline political and historical awareness that you get with Palestinians and Arabs in the Arab world, even in other places outside of the US, the North America, but even in some places in Europe, that there's this baseline understanding because it's an internationalist, it's the most logical position to have is to understand the Palestinian question or the Palestinian plight. Uh, but really us specifically living in the United States see, you know, that that level of understanding is, is not present. So one of our largest goals is to elevate the political consciousness of the diaspora. That's kind of like a, a mission of ours, basically. And so we use our life experience and our knowledge of that to try to create content that we know 
is not accessible via the standard channels, the popular channels. But once again, it's like if you dig in anywhere, you can find analysis, you can find uh, you know good analytical thought on it. But we want to enter that space that is a bridge between high level and what is readily accessible to the masses. And we want to elevate the collective consciousness in the West, basically. Yeah, no, appreciate that. So one of the things that has been stressed in a couple of the episodes, maybe all of them to some degree, is that even amid the genocidal campaign of the Israelis, which obviously has the full you know, backing, co-sponsorship, and authorship of the United States, um, and other Western powers of two, of course, is that you see the resistance as being in a great position, you know, a position that I think in one episode is said like it's never been in. And so I'm curious the extent, you know, as this continues to drag on, and obviously the, the atrocities, the humanitarian element of it is just awful, right? Do you still feel this way? Do you still think that this is the case and maybe a little bit about why? Yes. So... I think that that is still very valid and true because what we see now is a complete changing of the rules of the game as people understood them via, you know, the propaganda and the narrative of the West. It's pulled the veil, the very thin veil out from in front of people. And we're seeing the position of the resistance in a way that is favorable. For instance, I think the world is seeing the crisis mode that the occupation is in. I think the idea, one of the greatest successes of the resistance in this moment in time is revealing the untenable nature of this occupation. Um, it is not an everlasting, immortal, impenetrable thing. I mean, this can be said, There, people are seeing the, the level of kind of uh, instability and the level of kind of worry at the highest ranks of the occupation government. You could see that opposition leaders running on platforms to end the campaign as quick as possible and to try to achieve prisoner exchanges. We've seen, what is it, that 90% of the settlers who left in the recent time say that they refuse to go back because of a change in their understanding and view of the security apparatus of the trust in their the occupation security apparatus. And so... These are these are successes, and this is a position of the Palestinian resistance showing itself to the occupation, to residents of the occupation, to the world that this occupation apparatus is not as stable as it says about itself. Another, or another reason that it's in a favorable position is because it's changing the balance of power in a way, in sense of the you know the idea of like balance of deterrence, that there is this price to pay for the actions that the occupation carries out against the Palestinian people, which, you know, is built on an understanding that any action by the occupation will result in substantial responses. Um, also, the economic realities of the challenges uh, that the occupation has to bear, the burden it has to bear in its continuing of the occupation, the, the, the quarter billion dollars per day, apparently, according to the Israeli Ministry of finance that they're paying. And this is going to be born and the citizens of both the U.S. and U.S. taxpayers and occupation citizens are seeing that they are bearing this cost. Disruptions in 
you know, disruptions in the trade. Uh, apparently, you know, something like 35% of the occupation's GDP relies on trading goods, uh, which underscores some vulnerability uh, when it comes to disruptions of the trade routes, as we're seeing with the Yemeni participation. So, you know, all this comes out to say, or all this shows the occupation and people looking at the occupation, that there is a high price to pay for desecration of religious and holy sites and important to Palestinians, to their prisoners, whenever they do things to our prisoners, whenever the way that they, you know, every time that they violate Palestinian life, that there's a price to pay for that. Yeah, I think that's true, and I appreciate that. And I guess one of the questions that I've had recently, you know, is obviously like part of the, you know, calculus and, you know, I mean, Hamas has even said this is even part of their, um, they released a a report yesterday entitled Our Narrative, Operation All Axa Flood. And I know we're not going to get in deeply to that, but like one of the things that they that they talk about is, you know, obviously that the taking of, you know, prisoners of war, right, of of soldiers, right, which is their intent initially, is for a prisoner exchange, right? And there's there's historical precedents for that. There were obviously there was prisoner swap during the brief. I don't want to call it a ceasefire because it wasn't that. It was a um a pause, I guess is the you know, the term that, that was used in December. Isn't- and you know, the the one of the things that gets raised is this idea of the Hannibal Doctrine, um, you know, and I don't know if you want to say a little bit about that. I don't know about it deeply, but my understanding is it's basically a, a doctrine that, a, you know, basically authorizes the Israeli occupation forces to essentially shoot through their hostages to target uh, mm-hmm. Palestinians. You know, there's reports and you can't really trust <laughs> anything. <laughs> coming out of Israel in terms of reporting to be credible, but there was a report like a few days ago that they had allegedly found, you know, 20 dead hostages or whatever, which that could be totally false, or it could just be the case that these are people that died during Israeli bombings, etc. But as I hear you describing your understanding of why they're in a poor position, it's not all contingent upon the hostages. So I guess that kind of partly answers my question, but I wonder if you think that that reduces the leverage to some degree. And I mean, even part of the reason why I asked about this in like a U.S. context is like in the Attica Rebellion, they had all of these, all these corrections officers, right, that they had taken hostage. And, you know, the National Guard just went in and killed the corrections officers and killed the prisoners, yeah. you know. And, and so that's always a, a possible retaliatory response to that sort of attempt to take leverage that way. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think it's their own doctrine of the kind of weakness in that doctrine is being exposed in the sense that the directive, this Hannibal doctrine, Hannibal directive, what we're seeing is that it's actually reducing the faith of, you know, settler society in their own government. So their policy is chipping away at one of their core pillars of support for their occupation especially in the West. I mean, if you come over here and see, you know, you drive around several states, you know, you see these digitized billboards with hostages taken by Hamas. There's this narrative of, you know, trying to garner up support using that kind of sympathy model. And so by following their own directive, you know, they're they're revealing that, you know, they're showing the inconsistency and they're removing an avenue for 
you know, their own support. Also, the resistance is in a position where they're kind of in a win-win because if the occupation follows its, its directive and kills many of their own, you know, citizens, they'll further increase the internal divisions within Israeli society. If they do not do that, then there will be more collateral for the Palestinians to trade prisoners. So in both situations, from a long-term view, it's a win-win for Palestinian resistance. The directive no longer is, is really serving its purpose. You know, obviously there's a lot of, you know, when we look at Gaza, as we already mentioned, there is the the barbarity, right, of Israel and their their policies on display. And there's also the, the denial of, you know, food. Yeah. And so obviously the risks, you know, people have talked about this, the starvation, the, you know, inability to get medical care, et cetera. And, you know, the potential for, you know, obviously there's the genocidal element of that, but there's also the ethnic cleansing, right? Trying to move mm-hmm. Palestinians into the Sinai or, you know, elsewhere. And so, I mean, I think that the the thing I'm trying to get at, right, is like, mm-hmm. I, I agree with you, right, in terms of the, you know, there's nothing in my lifetime that we've seen like this in terms of the position the Palestinian resistance is in, its capabilities, and so on. And so obviously there's a lot there, I think, for people to to support, to recognize those those improvements and, and to see. Yeah. But I think there's also these, there is this sort of shadow side to the whole uh, equation, which is also that I think Israel is more, you know, the Zionist entity is more brazen, perhaps, than ever in yeah. kind of openly expressing and coordinating for either, you know, the genocide of the Palestinians in Gaza or the ethnic cleansing and expulsion of people from Gaza. So I guess yeah, yeah. in some sense, it's like, do you think that there's like enough deterrence to stop them from actually enacting that, yeah. you know, to how much of a concern does that pose for you? Yeah. And th- this is, this is truly the, this is truly the thing that I personally feel, you know, as somebody who has family members in Palestine who has lost people, not just, not just recently, but, but recently at an even more rapid pace, uh, this is the thing that is the most difficult for me to witness from afar. But per, my answer to that is perhaps uh, mm. this absolute atrociousness is kind of the is showing the world the true ugliness of what what is it going on, and perhaps this is what is necessary for a global awakening. Um, it's such a high cost to pay that an individual like myself, from the safety of you know sitting here and speaking with you. I do not pay that high price, the highest price possible. However, whenever you speak to Palestinians there, there's a resounding support for what they see as, you know, standing ground at whatever, whatever cost necessary. Um, you know, the, this displacement, the starvation, the denial of medical uh, services and goods. Uh, this is something that has become has become just so standard 
in the way that they deal with the Gazan population. So, you know, I don't know, as you can tell, this is, this is difficult for me because of the direct connection and the pain that I feel of what's going on. Uh, but I guess my response is to, is to listen to the Palestinian people in Palestine and what their voices on this are. And that's one of our goals is to, is, uh, you know, we, we established a journalistic office in Gaza. That was one of our biggest goals. At this moment, we are not able to uh, operate because everyone there is facing the exactly what's going on. But we wish to be, we, whenever we're faced with questions like this, we want to be able to say, here, listen to the Palestinians speaking on this. And that's one big goal for us. So, you know, this is something that I hope one day we can bring to the world directly the voices of the Palestinians there and, and what they are, what they think and feel about what's going on in terms of this thing. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's something that certainly we try to do to the extent that we're, we're capable as well. I mean, I think it's very important. So, you know, one of the episodes that you did recently, I think it's episode three, you talk about a martyr, Basilar Araj, and he's a figure who's come up a few conversations we've actually had over the years. I think he actually first came up maybe in an interview we did with Lara and Stephen Shihai, um, who are author of a book on basically decolonial psychoanalysis in, in mm. Palestine, but also has come up a little bit in conversations we've had with Abdul Jawad Omar. So what would you say is some of the importance of the legacy of this specific martyr from your perspective and why you all wanted to highlight him or kind of early on in the work you're doing with the resistance report? Oh yeah, but absolutely. Basil al-Araj is such an important piece of the, you know, the, the chain of resistance because the reason he's important to us is because, and I think to many people, uh, and that's why he's come up is because he represents the kind of conditions that so much, so many people in this contemporary moment are in that reckoning with, you know, one's own identity, one's own profession, one's own place in like kind of in class consciousness in society with like the obligation to, to be part of resistance. And then analyzing what does that mean in their specific life? You know, as you know, Al-Araj was a, a pharmacy student. The way that he committed himself to what he saw as the avenues in his specific life towards the resistance is so admirable. Another thing is, is that he showed the obligation of the intellectual in this moment in the resistance. And I think that it was so glaringly kind of principled in contrast to kind of, I would say, some of the self-serving academia that we see in the West around, you know, in resistance academia. He showed an actual way of speaking and applying oneself as a revolutionary academist. And that was just one part, you know, he also physically, you know, he gave himself as an academic, as a person in the street, as an organizer, as a supporter of the prisoners, and then eventually the, in the highest form possible, uh, you know, in physical arms against the occupation because of his situation. He basically showed that one must use, apply, you know, every means they have in their specific position. So he was, and I always call him the total revolutionary, you know, he's holistic uh, in, in all the senses. 
And also, um, the last thing I'll say about Basid is that he actually gave very clear package instructions to people, to Westerners in diaspora, you know, the eight rules. That's the reason it's so important is because he gave this kind of, le- he left a very clear kind of roadmap. And, you know, like Israeli occupation propaganda and U.S. propaganda around its support of the occupation has a specific goal of demoralizing us. But I would say that there is a way of finding hope by connecting with his materials and his rules. And that's another reason is this kind of, uh, there's this state of sadness that is kind of defeatism. And how could you not whenever the, you know, the, the, the just the unbelievable brute force of the atrocities that the occupation commits on a humanitarian level, you know, it's difficult not to have the status. I feel it, but Vassin showed us for this contemporary kind of this moment of time, kind of this hope. So it's very important. Now I will play a brief edited excerpt from the resistance report where Haidar reads Basil Al-Araj's eight rules. In the actual episode, which I highly encourage people to check out as an example of their work, Haidar's co-host Abdullah joins Haidar to interpret several events in the current war through the framework laid out in El Arej's rules. Basset left behind a book that was posthumously published in 2018, in which he laid out eight rules on the nature of war. The book, titled I Have Found My Answers, was actually finished during his six-month final act of resistance. Rule 1. The Palestinian resistance consists of guerrilla formations whose strategies follow the logic of guerrilla warfare. This kind of war is never based in the logic of conventional wars where you defend fixed points and borders. On the contrary, you draw the enemy into an ambush. You do not stick to a fixed position to defend it. Instead, you perform maneuvers, movements, withdrawal and attacks from the flanks and the rear. You allow your enemy to move as they wish so that they fall into your trap and you strike them. You determine the time and the location of the battle. So never measure it against conventional wars. Rule 2. The enemy will spread photos and videos of their invasion into Gaza, occupation of residential buildings, or presence in public areas and well-known landmarks. This is part of the psychological warfare in guerrilla wars. You allow your enemy to move in as they wish so that they fall into your trap and you strike them. You determine the location and timing of the battle. The battle is judged by its overall results, and this is merely a show. Rule 3. Never spread the occupation's propaganda, and do not contribute to instilling a sense of defeat. Never spread panic. Be supportive of the resistance, and do not spread any news broadcast by the occupation. Rule 4. The enemy may broadcast images of prisoners, most likely civilians, but the goal is to suggest the rapid collapse of the resistance. Do not believe them. Rule 5. The enemy will carry out tactical, qualitative operations to assassinate some symbols of resistance, and all of this is part of psychological warfare. Those who have died and those who will die will never affect the resistance's system and cohesion because the structure and formations of the resistance are not centralized but horizontal and widespread. Their goal is to influence the resistance support base and the families of the resistance fighters, as they are the only ones who can affect the men of the resistance. 
Rule 6. Our direct human and material losses will be much greater than the enemies, which is natural in guerrilla wars that rely on willpower, the human element, and the extent of patience and endurance. We are far more capable of bearing the costs, so there is no use in publicly panicking due to the magnitude of the numbers. Rule 7. Today's wars are no longer just wars and clashes between armies, but rather are struggles between societies. Let us be like a solid structure and play a game of biting fingers with the enemy. Rule 8. Finally, every Palestinian. And in the broad sense, this means you, meaning anyone who sees Palestine as part of their struggle, regardless of their secondary identities. Every Palestinian is on the front lines of the battle for Palestine. So be careful not to fail in your duty. I appreciate that. Yeah, one of the things you talked about early in this conversation and, you know, in our prior discussion, you mentioned it as well, is that your outlet has faced some repression or suppression. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, it's interesting, you know, given, you know, I know that you all have some other work beyond the resistance report too, Mm -hmm. but, you know, usually a, a platform, it's not like you guys are no offense, right? It's not like yeah, yeah. Huge, huge yet, you know, and and I will say you, I hope that you do become huge. So it's interesting, you know, I think that you would have folks trying to suppress and repress what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of unbelievable uh, what occurred. But the reason is, is because whenever this network and idea from network was announcing itself to the world via social media, you know, we, uh, we listed some organizations that exist in the world that you know for Palestinian liberation that are working for prisoner issues like Samedun network that these were people who we spoke with or who you know so that to understand their work what they're doing where they are and whatnot so the, I believe it was the Jerusalem Post published this we hadn't even done anything yet we hadn't even produced anything and they, they published this article that was widely circulated and it was saying things like AFMN is associated with the PFLP and this and that. It's like we hadn't even done anything yet. But it was this, it was this very, I think there was something about saying that we will speak about, you know, the resistance. We will speak about people doing the work. We are independent from everything and we're going to be a platform that can't be silenced because we're going to build our own platform however long that takes. And that, that just, I think, was enough of a kernel that, you know, we got some attention. Um, then we've also had issues with repression by the financial system. You know, we tried to buy a camera, just a piece of equipment, a stabilizer and a camera in Gaza for our people who are doing work there. We filmed, as you saw, Bayan. And, uh, and unfortunately, um, you know, they arrested our videographer for some of that original work, just was murdered by the Hamash. Uh, but getting him a, uh, uh, you know, just, just buying a piece of equipment led to accounts being frozen, getting booted off in every platform, like uh, MoneyGram, Western Union, they blocked us instantly, couldn't send anything, sent money to an individual who has family in Gaza who goes back and forth so that they could just you know, could just give them cash to buy a camera. And that resulted in our personal bank account being frozen for months. And then now it's like all the surveillance, all this harassment till this very day over buying a piece of camera equipment. 
Uh, and then lastly, you know, there's your standard uh, harassment, but you know, that's nothing different than anybody on social media. But those original orig uh, initial movements from the banking system, as well as like from established, you know, journalistic, if I mean, I say that with a grain of salt, you know, their <laughs> propaganda outlets just laying into us from the beginning was just really unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's crazy. But I, I also understand it in terms of how, you know, essentially any resistance group within Palestine is branded as, you know, a terrorist, right, by the U.S. and, yeah. and Israel, obviously, and the way financial sanctions and things like this, you know, yeah. work. And But nonetheless, I mean, that's a real-time experience and example of it that is pretty illustrative for folks listening in of like what that means in practice if you're just trying to do, you know, media work, right? Just trying to yeah. like have, you know, have videographer, have, you know, reporters or, um, yeah. you know, whatever in, in Palestine and, and, and especially in Gaza, you know? Yeah. Um, so another question is just a little bit about what you see as the role of people who are not in Palestine in supporting Palestinians. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you talked about this a little bit in your episode on Basel. But what in your mind are some of the aspects of what principled solidarity with Palestinians looks like? Obviously, acknowledging that it's going to look different for different people in different places and, yes. you know, based on people's ability and so on, you know, there are things that they're, you know, going to be able to do or whatever. But what are important principles around this kind of solidarity with Palestinian struggle from your perspective? Yeah, I think. One of the most important things that we can do in the diaspora and, and people in the West, uh, people supporters of Palestinian liberation and Palestinian, you know, sovereignty is humanizing Palestinians who are, you know, fighting to defend their, their people and their land, humanizing them everywhere we can, you know, by sharing information, by sharing their narrative, by pointing people towards literature and information on who they are and why they're, you know, what they're doing, because the propaganda, as you said in just a, a few moments ago, I mean, um, I believe the women's workers collective and like the agricultural collective, these are organizations that are labeled as terrorist organizations by the, <laughs> you know, things that are just, it's preposterous. So, uh, and then, you know, that's exponentially worse when it comes to people exercising their internationally recognized right to defend themselves against colonization. So humanizing Palestinians who are fighting to defend their land and their honor and their, their people is, is very important. I would also say we really need to focus um, showing the class dimension related to the fight for Palestinian liberation because it is what connects uh, individuals all over the globe to the occupation. The, the, you know, it's an, such an economic sink, reminding Westerners that every dollar that is spent in the occupation is not being spent on their healthcare, their education, their infrastructure. Like it's so ludicrous, and I think that that class consciousness will make it so much more apparent. So that's very important. And another very important thing is to become more educated and organized in the Western left around Palestinian liberation and moving away from this kind of more individualistic, self-satisfying protest as a mode of catharsis and just, you know, you're angry, so you're going to go out and yell, you're going to walk around a neighborhood and go back home. What the heck did that do? You know, now, you know, 
I say that by saying the resistance, you know, actually congratulates and lauds people for protesting, right? But that's just one thing. That isn't it. And we have to have a, what's more important is a move towards organized actions, shutting down the industrial, financial, and political supporters of the occupation. And we see that with actions like PAL action here in the US. They recently shut down the Albert Systems factory for days, I believe. And, you know, every day is hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so a movement towards organizing on a community level and direct uh, engagement with the supporters of the occupation in your own backyard. You know, and just like you were saying, everyone has a different role to play. Students uh, have an intellectual obligation due to their position of privilege, their access to information, their access, you know, their, their ability, the their life experiences that have been afforded them to be able to be in an intellectual atmosphere. That's their obligation, you know. And at the end, utilizing every avenue, you know, where are you in society? Where are you in your life? Where are you, you know, regionally and applying yourself to whatever modes of organizing are available to you there? Yeah, right on. So what are some of the things, you know, that you can talk about in terms of where you all want to go in some of the future work that you hope to do? Um, you know, I'm not trying to make you do too many spoilers or anything like that, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's just maybe just talk about how you see this project hopefully developing over time. Yeah. Well, we'd love one of the very important things for myself is, uh, and we do a little bit of it with the resistance support, but it's becoming kind of a curriculum on Palestine, you know, programs that really go look into our history. They're very important to me, the work of somebody like Salman Abu Sitte, a geographer, uh, you know, bringing this consciousness of the Palestinian landscape of what what is there, how we interacted over time. You know, I personally am a historian, and I think that the Al Falsani can serve to be a curriculum. So, you know, for going and finding information on Palestine, there are also things that we'd love to do. We start out with the goal to be. Uh, when we say media network, we mean it in the sense that we want to pursue all the all the types of media. You know, we want to engage with video. We want to engage with uh, publications, written publications. So that's something we'd also like to to work with in the future as we build our capacity. Uh, and I think the biggest goal is to have that headquarters in Palestine functioning, so that we are a direct conduit between Palestine and the rest of the world with our Hezze office. And we it's very important to us that whenever we chose to, you know, apply for our registration in Gaza like a year and a half ago, it was because of a statement that Gaza is part and parcel of Palestine as a whole. And um, you know, that that physical connection to the homeland is very important to us too. There's other stuff, but you know, it's all coming Hopefully, right now we just want to focus on this product, this important product to us, this important you know creation, which is the resistance report. And we invite people to engage with us and ask for things that we'd like to to learn about, and you know we will create things based on that. We really do want uh, also to be actively uh, interacting with people who are listening to us. Right on. Well, in closing. I guess there's two things. One would be if there's anything else that you wanted to say or share. Um, and then another would be just ways that people can 
you know, find, I mean, obviously we'll link some stuff, but just like, you know, ways people can find you, get in touch, connect with you all and, and maybe support your work as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we have, we have a very, just, just the way that we connected on our social media, on the Instagram and Twitter X, we have a very active connection there. Like if you reach out, we will be, we, we will respond, you know, so those are good avenue to talk with us and also learn about things we've just released. We're developing, you know, to me, having a website eventually want to build the awareness around the fact that our website is where everything is. And that's to me, how it can become a more independent network that isn't susceptible to these kind of silencing that occurs on social media due to, you know, the hostile environment there. So, you know, keep your eye out on AFMN.org. We're building it still. And if you want to support this work, we have like a Patreon basically, which is used to support these like you know, the fees for the website and stuff. And we also are going to be finding ways to, you know, financially support our people in Gazid in that office. So if you want to support our work at all, it's patreon.com forward slash AFMN. Yeah. Right on. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it was great to connect. And I, you know, I continue to follow the work you do, encourage others to do the same and to support you as well. And I look forward to watching how your project, you know, grows from here. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate being here with you. Great. Thank you.
Thank you.